Indeed, we give praise to the Lord because we can be and are satisfied in him alone. He has given all of himself to us and we can delight all of ourselves in him. And we are reminded of that as we sing his praises and as we open his word now. And so let's ask God's assistance as we come to his word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that we are able to know you and to commune with you. We thank you that we can have a relationship through Jesus Christ. And I ask now as we open your word that you would empower us through the power of Christ to be able to know you more deeply, to understand your word more truly, and to live more rightly. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, it is a feature of mankind that we are proud. Ever since our first parents ate of the tree, defined the word of God, and believing that they knew better than their creator, mankind has exhibited great pride and boastfulness in their own wisdom. Pride is simply the attitude of the heart that sees itself as superior to others. It doesn't necessarily have to be superior to everyone else, but it's definitely superior to others and therefore in lies the heart of pride, exalting of oneself over others. And this pride can manifest itself in many different ways, but at its core, pride is treasonous before God. Again, as I alluded to with Genesis chapter 3 and our first parents, as they defied the authority of God in their life, so too when we exhibit pride, we are showing our, believing ourselves to be better and more wise than our creator. Mankind, in our sin, we don't want Christ as Lord over us. We don't want someone else telling us what to do. We don't want someone else in charge of our lives. We want to set the agenda. We want to be in charge. Now, as Christians, we can easily confess, yep, mankind, we're proud. In our nature, in our flesh, pride exists. And we can also readily point out pride wherever we see it, right? Even in our culture and turn on the news or or social media or whatever, and you can easily point out the glaring realities of pride that we see out there in other people. But pride can infect those of us in the church, often in more insidious ways than we realize. Out there in the world, brazen self-promotion is a badge of honor. You want to increase your platform. You want to make a name for yourself. And if you're able to do that boldly and confidently, you're praised. And the church, well, we're not going to be quite so brazen that way. We know that we shouldn't be making a name for ourselves, And so we learn to couch our pride and our self-promotion in more spiritual, holy-sounding language. But make no mistake, friends, our flesh, the sin nature that is still resides within us, finds a way to gain glory and attention to itself. And this idea or this reality of seeking to, to get a name for ourselves and getting glory for ourselves, that temptation is not so, none so true than when we are serving the Lord. When we're busy in ministry, when we are 
giving of ourselves unto God, whether that's personally and privately, whether in our devotions or evangelism or in, in our home life, or whether it's in a more public sort of ministry, this desire of our flesh to be gratified, to gain attention, and to be exalted, the temptation is there. Do something for God, and you can expect your pride to seek to get credit for it. Serve in ministry, and you'll find that rising desire to be recognized. Serve the Lord for many years. Be faithful in a ministry, and you can begin to expect subtly to think that God owes you something for all of that time. And these temptations exist for each one of us. These weeds of spiritual pride can grow up in our hearts, but it must be our constant occupation to tend to the soil of our hearts. We must be weeding out pride wherever it pops up and cultivating humility. It's always helpful when we realize that we're not alone in this struggle. And I came across a quote this week of Martin Luther, the great reformer, who spoke about his own struggle with spiritual pride. He said this, he said, even though we are in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he will take this into account. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. I myself have been preaching grace for almost 20 years and still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet this is what I should and must do. Friends, this is what we all must do is that we contribute nothing to our salvation, nothing to our sanctification. The Christian life is one of continual surrender to the grace of God. Any good that arises in our life is a result of his grace and therefore he gets the credit. And yet pride is there, always seeking to make an attack. And friends, make no mistake, pride is not just a nuisance, it's a poison. It seeks to kill and shrivel our souls. As the British pastor John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. Pride indeed is the great enemy of the Christian. Humility is our great friend and God makes it clear that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble as he says in 1 Peter 5 verse 5. And so today we're going to look at what it takes to cultivate humility in our hearts and lives. Cultivate it as, as we would a crop in the ground. And for those of you who have done any sort of gardening or maybe you were given a plant and, uh, and, uh, and you learned the hard way that having a plant or taking care of it, whether it's in a pot in the house or in the ground outside, takes cultivation. It takes work, regular work to see that that plant comes to fruition and produces the fruit that you wish to see. You can't just deal with it once and expect it to produce the fruit. You can't weed once and expect yourself, it, your plant to be good. You can't just water once. You can't just fertilize once. You can't just remove pests once. You must be regularly cultivating it. The same is true with pride and humility. We cannot plant the seeds of humility and think that we are done. We must do regular work to ensure that it's growing in our heart 
and life. And so in our passage today, Jesus is going to give us some helpful teaching on the attitude of humility that he desires all his followers to possess. And so I invite you, if you're not there already, to turn with me to Luke chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke chapter 17. And we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10 today. As we began last week, we are taking the first three sections of Luke 17 as an opportunity to consider old lessons for a new year. Last week, we looked at dealing rightly with sin. Today, we're looking, looking at humility. Next week, gratitude. Now, these, again, are not new lessons. They're old lessons. We have heard these before, but it's helpful to be reminded of these as we start a new year, as we start 2023. Today, we'll just be looking at verses 7 through 10, and so follow along as I read Luke 17, beginning in verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now before we look into this text for the insights uh, on humility, on cultivating humility, I want us to first just look broadly at the parable that he gives here. These questions uh, draws out a parable for us. And so let's look at the parable and then we'll see the lessons that we can learn from it. Verses 7, 8, and 9 all document three questions that Jesus asks and through the course of asking these questions he tells a parable he sets the scene and and tells of a of a situation and by asking the questions again this is Jesus the genius teacher by asking the questions he's not just giving a statement in which the people listening have to think about a scenario but they are forced to even ask the question and answer it themselves and therefore it engages them and in the same way it engages us today now in the greek the language that the new testament was written in an author could indicate whether his question whether he assumes his question has a yes answer or a no answer just in the way he writes it and so the reader could read it and go oh this this person's asking the question assuming a no answer or assuming a yes answer and the same is true in these questions. The first and the third question, verses 7 and 9, Jesus assumes a negative answer to which the original audience would likewise answer and say, no way. No, that's not the way it would go. But the middle question, verse 8, he assumes a positive answer, a yes answer. Yes, that is the way it should go. Now, interestingly, the King James and the New King James preserve a manuscript tradition in verse uh, 9 that uh, adds a, a little phrase that says, I think not or I trow not in the Old, in the old King James, uh, trying to preserve that idea of a negative answer. I think not. And I don't think that's the, the best way to translate the verse, but it, it shows that idea of assumption of a negative answer. Now, in the first question, in verse 7, he begins to paint the scenario. He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Now here he's talking to his audience and asking, any of you have a servant 
that would go out and be plowing the field and be keeping sheep and then would come in and fix a meal. Now in our day, we think if you have servants, then you must be quite wealthy to be able to pay to have someone that's there to help. But that was not the case in the first century. Many people, even those of very modest income, would, could even have one such slave. And it seems to be that this uh, person here at least has this one servant because this person's doing the plowing and the shepherding and, as we'll see, is going to come in and be expected to prepare the meal as well. And so the, the man mentioned here is not a great wealthy landowner, but merely one of modest means. Now the word for servant here, you'll notice in the English Standard Version, the, in the translation I'm preaching from has the footnote that this could be translated bondservant. In the Greek, it's the word doulos. This is most commonly known as slave. Again, English translations try to deal with it different ways to help us 21st century Christians to understand what's being talked about. But slave is the most basic rendering of that word doulos. In the Roman Empire in the first century, really throughout the Roman Empire, not just the first century, slaves were a common part of life and society. There were many slaves all over the empire. It was very common for people to have slaves. They could go into slavery either by being captured in the land, if their land was conquered by the Roman army, or they could go into somewhat of an indentured servanthood as well. And these slaves, as long as they did their duty, they would be treated relatively well. They could, have a marry, uh, they could marry and have a family. They would have their basic necessities such as clothing and food taken care of shelter over their head, and they would even be given somewhat of an allowance or a, uh, some money on top of that. And they were dressed decently and, and well-fed. And so, and, in fact, it's been documented that on average, slaves could gain their freedom after seven years. This was not a lifelong uh, slave, slavery that they would be uh, confined to. And so, Many in that day uh, owned a slave, and so Jesus uh, uses this as, a, as an analogy, as an illustration. And he asks them a question about the privileges that they would give to their slaves and award them. And so he asks, uh, when they've come in from plowing and keeping sheep, would you then basically pull a chair back and say, hey, come sit at the table and join me for a meal? That seems like a nice thing. Oh, he's going to give him a meal, right? Well, this is most likely not the late in the evening sort of meal. This is probably like a mid-afternoon, a 3 p.m. sort of meal. And, and so there were still working hours in the day that would, that would be uh, required of this slave. And so essentially, Jesus is asking these people, do you give your slaves the privilege of sitting at the master's table before the work is done? Have they deserved special recognition for what they've done so far in the working day? And again, Jesus assumes a negative answer. Everyone would go, no, just because they're half done with their chores doesn't mean that they suddenly get to take part in a feast with the master at the table. They've got to continue on with what they're called to do. Jesus then makes it clear of what would naturally take place. Verse 8, his next question. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. He then describes the way it normally would go. The slave would come in, he said, I've just finished plowing the field, I've shepherded the sheep, moved them to a different pasture and, uh, and then they say, great, well why don't you go and, and put your apron on and begin to prepare the meal 
and we'll be ready for the food here shortly. And then after you're done, after the master, the master's table is done eating, then it would be time, then the, the chores would be over, the task would be done for the day, and the slave would then be able to partake of his own meal. But it's only then after he has finished his task and done what, is, what he was commanded to do that he is then allowed to eat. The point here being that the slave and the master are not equal partners. There is a role that each of them play and they are not on level playing field. The almost impropriety of asking for a slave to come sit at your mid-afternoon table would be somewhat akin to if you were out on a date with your, with your spouse at a nice restaurant and you're just partway through your meal and the question would be, would you invite the server to come sit at your table and to have dinner with you even though your dinner is not finished being served? You've only gotten the first course. And we'd say, no, you actually, you're a server. Your job is to serve us the food. You've got to finish your job and then you, can, then you can sit down and have your meal. But you've got a job to finish and it's not proper for you to stop halfway through that and suddenly get to partake in this meal. The server needs to finish their job. And so, in verse 9, Jesus finishes out his parable by asking yet a third question. He says, does he, the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Because he did what was commanded. In other words, Jesus is asking this, is the slave worthy of any sort of special recognition because of the task that he performed. Again, Jesus assumes a negative answer and everyone would have gone, no. There's no reason that the master should thank this slave for doing simply what he was, uh, he was supposed to do. It was on the task list for the day. He's supposed to plow the field. He's supposed to shepherd the sheep. He's supposed to prepare the meal. Check, check, check. He's good. He goes to bed and he's good and he gets his meal. Why would he receive any sort of spe special recognition? Now, this is not... Jesus is not indicating that masters should be rude to their slaves or they should be inconsiderate or any of the sort. He's simply talking about what's proper between a master and slave relationship. The absurdity of what Jesus is painting here of a master stopping to thank the slave for what he's done could maybe be understood if, take for example a, a fast food restaurant and in the midst of the busy day as the, the workers that are all there preparing burgers and fries and the, the, the boss comes in and calls a hot uh, halt to all the operations and, uh, and, and then wants to throw a feast and a party for the fry guy, the guy doing the fries for hour after hour and says, you know, you've just been doing fries and you do them all day. And so I just want to, want to give you some special recognition for doing fries. Or maybe it's the person taking orders and everything goes on hold, and you go, wait a minute, but he's getting paid for this. This is just part of his job. This is what he signed up to do. This is, this is just the normal required uh, tasks that are there. What he has done is not deserving necessarily of any sort of special recognition, of any sort of above and beyond sort of attention. The same is true in this Society and in this situation between the master and the slave, it doesn't make sense that the master would thank or provide any sort of special 
favor upon the slave for simply doing what was commanded. And so finally, in verse 10, Jesus applies the parable to the disciples and thus to us with this statement. Look at it in verse 10 with me. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The first three questions were all from the master's perspective. Which of you would do this to your slave, this to your slave, this to your slave? And then finally in verse 10, he switches it to the slave's perspective. What is it that the slave should say? What is it that we as Christ's disciples should say? And here he teaches, I believe, a fundamental principle of what it means to be a Christian. If we are to follow Jesus, if we are to be a Christian, then this verse must be true of us. We must walk with the humility that is verbalized here in this statement. And this statement alone, this one verse challenges our spiritual pride, does it not? And yet we need to ask, are these words or something remotely close to it found upon our own lips? Are we able to say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. This verse has a few words that are abrasive to modern ears. To be called a slave is a designation that not many modern people would happily take to themselves. In addition to this, we live in an inclusive world in which we don't want anyone to be left out. Everyone gets a participation award and and everyone is worthy of an award. And so for us to knowingly take the label unworthy is uncomfortable at the very least. It's difficult for us to do. And then finally, in Christian circles, you say the word duty, and it's almost uh, like a four-letter word. Oh, wait, did you say duty? Like this is what we have to do? It sounds grudging and painful and ugh. We're not going to describe the Christian life that way, duty. And so all these things packed into one little phrase and it kind of makes us uneasy a little bit. And yet, Jesus says, when you have done all that was commanded, say, say out loud and say in your head, think, I am an unworthy slave. I was only doing my duty. After all the years that you've lived for Christ and what you've done for him, can you say, I am an unworthy slave. I have only done what was my duty. After all the hours that you've given in one ministry or another, whether it's nursery, youth ministry, whatever, greeting, whatever it might be, can you say, I'm an unworthy slave, undeserving of any special praise? Or maybe it's simply in your own private devotion to the Lord after all of the times you've read through the scriptures, all the prayers that you've offered, all the temptations that you've resisted, can you truly say, I'm an unworthy slave? I saw this modeled in my grandmother who passed away a couple of years ago. She gave her life to the ministry of the Lord. She married her husband as she met in Bible college and they went off and did pastoral ministry. He, grandfather was a pastor and she was alongside him through decades and decades. And over this Christmas break, we were back home and my mom had let me read through some of her journals and I came across this sweet 
entry in which she was speaking about me and my siblings, her grandchildren, and she said, I pray that my grandchildren would know that I belong to God. And I was just touched with the simplicity of her faith and all that she's done for the Lord and all the hours and all the painstaking labors that she's given, but she simply wants to be known as one who belongs to Christ. And indeed, that was her legacy. And so this, these words need to be on our tongue. This humility needs to be in our hearts. And so with the time that we have remaining, as we unpack Jesus' words here in verse 10, I want to identify some habits that we need to adopt so that we can cultivate humility. Namely, five habits that we need to adopt to help cultivate this kind of humility that's identified in this statement of verse 10 in our own lives. Now, obviously, in this text, Jesus is not directly teaching about five habits or any sort of habits. But in order for these words to be found on our lips, friends, we have got to do some work in our own hearts internally so that this attitude could be found in us. And so I believe these habits that I will give you are prompted by these words. And so the first habit that we're prompted to adopt based upon Jesus' words here is that we must recall your slavery to Christ. You must recall your slavery to Christ. In order for us to be able to say, I am an unworthy slave, we must remember that we are indeed slaves, slaves to Christ. Identifying the Christian life as one of slavery might sound revolutionary, but friends, it is Christianity 101. For starters, we need to remember what is the fundamental Christian confession? It is that Christ is Lord. To say Christ is Lord means that he's the one that's in charge. He is the ruler. He is the king. And we live a life of submission under him. Therefore, we submit to Christ. He is God. And there is none like him. But not only is he Lord who is divine, but he is the Lord who has bought us with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. He redeemed us like a master would a slave. As the language of redemption comes from the slave market world where they would go out to the slave market and they would redeem and pay for a slave. Friends, that's what God did with us. He purchased us with his own blood that we might be his we might be his own possession, the New Testament says, Titus 2.14. So when we became a slave of Christ, we did not go from a state of freedom to one of slavery. No, every single person is already in slavery to sin. It's just a matter of whom you're in slavery to. Because people are enslaved to sin, when Christ rescues us and redeems us, we go from being a slave of sin to being a slave of Christ. And as this is not a harsh relationship, this slavery, this is a loving relationship with our Savior, but it is still a relationship of slave to master. It's a relationship where we are obedient slaves to a loving master. And Paul describes this new relationship in Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, and he says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness, another designation of being slaves to Christ. 
You see, when one becomes a Christian, he's set free from sin's tyranny and is brought into humble submission to Christ the Lord. Again, this grates against us. We want to be in charge. We don't want to have to submit. But this is exactly what the gospel calls us to do. The apostles understood this. Peter, Paul, James all begin one of their letters by identifying themselves as a doulos of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. They knew that they were happily in bondage to their Savior who had paid their ransom. And so, friends, I ask, is this true of you? Are you happily in bondage to your Savior who ransomed you? Do you see your relationship to Christ as one as a slave to a master? Do you regularly recall that you are a slave of Christ, that you are not your own, that you were bought with the price? You see, to be a Christian is not so much to offer our services to God that he might use us as much as it is to surrender our life to him. And as we do that, he does use us, praise God. But fundamentally, we are submitting our lives to the Lord. And this requires self-denial. This requires a giving up of ourselves, which is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Friends, we are in bondage to Christ because life is only found in him. And so how do we cultivate humility? We begin by recalling that we are slaves to Christ and that he is Lord over us. It all starts there. The second habit, though, that we must adopt in order to cultivate humility that's found in this text is, number two, you must recognize your duty to obey Christ. You must recognize your duty to obey Christ. And this obviously flows out of the first point. We are not in charge of our lives. Jesus is Lord. We don't call the shots. Jesus does. And so if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then what follows is that you follow his commands. It's that simple. Yes, Jesus gives commands. Jesus has commandments that we are to follow. He said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. You will obey him. You will submit to him. That's what our love is to look like, is in happy obedience to our Savior. And so, friends, we are duty-bound to obey Christ. It's very clear in the parable before us, as his slaves, we must listen to the voice of our master, our Lord, and do all that he tells us. Now, you'll notice in verses 9 and 10, the emphasis is on all that was commanded. You did all that was commanded, and when you have done all that was commanded, and when you have done your duty. I think that all is key in verse 10. When you have done all that you were commanded. Christian, you cannot pick and choose what you are to obey. We can't look at the scriptures and say, I want to obey this verse, but not that one. I like this command because it fits, but I don't like this one. That one's too hard. We are to do all that is commanded of us. He doesn't want partial obedience. He wants full obedience. This is found in the Great Commission, you'll remember. Jesus sends out his disciples into the world and says, go 
make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 20, teaching them to observe some of what I've commanded you? No. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus does not just want knowledge of his commandments. He wants observation, observing, or, or uh, this could be keeping or obeying of his commandments. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded them. Don't just teach them to know all that I've commanded. But of course, knowledge comes first. We've got to know what the scriptures say. We can't obey if we don't know. And so we need to be familiar with the scriptures so we know what our Lord has told us to do and so that we can be faithful slaves to do what he commands. Notice that we are to continue to press on until all, we've done all that we've com it's been commanded of us. In other words, there is no retirement age in the Christian life. As followers of Jesus, we are to continue to do all that is commanded of us, and there's no time that that suddenly ends. There's no point in which someone can claim that they have met the quota for what God requires of us. And so, friends, as we remind ourselves of our duty to obey Christ, we are humbled because we recognize we don't set the agenda for our lives. We are not the ones in charge. Jesus is the one in charge. We are carrying out his will, not our will, but your will be done, as we sang just a moment ago. And so, friends, you will not have the humbled perspective that Jesus commands here or commends here if you are not reminding yourself that Jesus is Lord and that you must obey what he says. Now, again, this does not mean that our duty to Christ is drudgery and that we just kind of shuffle and do what we're supposed to do. That goes against all the scriptures say about obeying from the heart. But it is still a duty. It's a joyful duty, but it's still a duty. Now, let's look at the third habit that is prompted by this text Thirdly, you must realize your failure to obey Christ. You must realize your failure to obey Christ. Now remember, we are seeking to cultivate humility. We want to see our hearts not uh, be boastful and proud of what we have attained and what we have done, but for us to walk in humility and recognize the low place that we occupy. And in order for us to be able to have these words on our tongue that we are unworthy slaves... We must see that we are slaves of Christ and we do what he says, but as soon as we see this standard, that we are to do all that is commanded of us, we all have that sinking feeling because we know that we fail to measure up, don't we? None of us does all that Christ commands of us. We are faced with our own failure. And this is precisely in line with the gospel, isn't it, friends? That none of us attain God's standard of perfection. We all fall short of God's moral standard of perfection. None of us perfectly obey all that Christ has said. Now, and this is exactly what we had to confess when we came to Christ. When you became a Christian, when you trusted in Jesus for the first time, you laid down all of your righteousness and said, I have nothing. I fall short. I do not measure up. I am a sinner. That's what, that's what confessing sin is. It's saying, I don't have the righteousness that it takes. I fall short. I am stained. 
But friends, we don't stop saying that. It's not that we come to Christ and we say, I'm a sinner and I fall short, and then we become a Christian, and now we can say, oh, now I have all the righteousness I need, and I am doing the perfect, perfect things, and I'm obeying Christ's commands perfectly. We continue to confess that throughout our lives. The Bible says that whatever good and righteousness we produce on our own is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. And all the good things we do fails to measure up to Christ's standard. Now, this could discourage us. Man, I can't do anything. You're telling me that I'm trying to live for the Lord and, and I just fail everywhere I go? But friends, this should not discourage us, but it should humble us. It should not discourage us, as we'll see, but it should humble us. We cannot take pride in any of our obedience. Any sort of good thing that we do for the Lord, we don't get a gold star for that. We don't suddenly get credit because we did something good for Christ. Even the good things we try to do fall short. There's no Christian who's ever done all that was commanded, not even the Apostle Paul. And so we must realize afresh our sin and our failure and recognize that even though the standard is high and we want to live for Christ, that we don't measure up. We're not going to cultivate humility if we continue to think highly of our own good deeds. And so we must realize our failure to obey Christ. To cultivate humility, we must admit this reality. We've got to shoot holes in our high assessments of ourselves. We can't look at our track record and see only the ministry that we did for Jesus and think that this is praiseworthy and should be honored. We need to be honest and confess our shortcomings and our sins that even our best duties are riddled through with sin and pride and desire for ourselves and selfishness. But we don't stop here. We don't sit in this uh, valley of shortcomings. Let's look fourthly at the fourth habit that this text prompts us to do, and that is to redirect the credit back to Christ. To redirect the credit back to Christ. Now, the primary expression of spiritual pride that Jesus is taking aim at in these verses in Luke 17 is believing that we are owed something by God because of our service to him. It's those who take the Christian life in an accounting sort of mindset that, well, I've done this for God, so then God should give me this. And because I've given him this many years or done this many things, that God then should give me this. And it's an easy mentality to slip into. We might say, oh, I don't think that way with God. And, and yet there's ways that this mentality can easily slip in. And it's often in trials that we are tested to see whether we're expecting something from God, that we believe we deserve something from God, that, that God should give us something better than what we have. God, I've loved you this long. I've served you this long. I've been a Christian this long. I've served in this ministry. That means that you're going to give me blank, right? Or how could you threaten this because I have served you? Could be any number of things. Could be the job that we think we deserve or should have and God's not delivering. We think that God should give us a spouse in our timing and in our way. Or it should change our spouse. 
or our children deserve to be healthy. God wouldn't cause our child's health to be at risk after all the years of faithfulness we've given him, right? But friends, the pride that believes that uh, God owes us something is directly opposed to Christ and to the gospel. We saw this illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother, remember, who stayed home and didn't run away from home. And he's there working in the field, working hard, but believing all the while that because of his faithfulness, his father owes him big time. Thereby illustrating the mentality of the scribes and the Pharisees at that time who believed because of all their righteousness, because of all the religious things that they did, that God owed them big time and he better deliver. This is the same belief that stands behind what is known as the health and wealth gospel as well. Those who say, listen, if you give such and such amount of money to God, you serve him in these ways, then God is going to bless you. He owes you health and wealth. That is a false gospel. Friends, the point that Jesus makes emphatically here is that God owes you and me absolutely nothing. He owes us nothing. God is not indebted to us. Just because we do what is commanded, just because we obey him, does not mean that God is obligated to give us any sort of bonus. And we should have this mentality that believing that God owes us anything. Now, don't get me wrong. God does give us much. He is a generous, loving, gracious God. And he delights in giving to his children. I am not trying to indicate that God is somehow stingy and the Scrooge in his blessings. What Jesus is addressing here is our heart attitude in how we view our ministry, our service to God. We cannot get a debt sort of mentality in our minds. But even when God gives us these things and delights to give us rewards and salvation and all these things, it's not because God is somehow a debtor to us, that because we've racked up all these brownie points, God must then give us these in order to balance the scales. Everything we receive from him is because of his grace, because out of his good favor, he wants to generously give them to us, not because we've earned them. We did not earn salvation in the first place and we don't earn rewards once we're saved. We don't earn any of it. God just gives generously. And so if there's anything good that you do, any sort of ministry you've been able to be a part of, any sort of faithfulness that you've seen in your life, maybe a a, a disciplined habit that God has worked in your life over a number of years, a a speech pattern that you were able to conquer and, and walk in righteousness, whatever it might be, friends, you cannot we must not take credit for those good things. Those are not of our doing. Those are the work of God in us. He's the one that empowers our service. He enables you to remain faithful to him. If he were to let you go, you would slide away. 
We don't have the spiritual strength to stay faithful to God in and of ourselves. We need God. We need the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, which is why he gives us the Spirit in the first place. He gets the credit for our faithfulness. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in you. Paul understood that it was God's grace that enabled him to be the man that he was. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, our salvation from start to finish, from the day we believed all through our Christian life and on through eternity is all because of Christ. We have no cause for boasting, no cause for pride. We can take no credit for the things that we do. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, if you are serving Christ for five years or 50 years, it is all because of Christ and he gets the credit. He owes you nothing. He is to receive all the praise and all the glory for what he has worked in and through you. So we need to remind ourselves of that, redirect that credit back to Christ. If we see goodness in us, we remind ourselves, this is all because of him. It's all because of him. It's not because something I've done independent of God and God then owes me because of some something that I've worked out on my own. No, it's all because of him and therefore he gets the credit. Let's finish by looking fifthly at the fifth and final habit that we need to adopt in order to see this humility cultivated in our hearts. Fifthly, you must remember your heavenly rewards are graciously given by Christ. Your heavenly rewards are graciously given by Christ. I think as we look at this text and we see this reality that God does not is not obligated to give us any sort of special recognition, extra brownie po points, extra gold stars for what we've done. And so we just, we deflect all of that and we say, no, I, I don't deserve this. This wasn't me. This is all you. I am just an unworthy slave. I have done what was my duty. But as we try to make that fit in what we know of the Christian life, and what we know of the rest of the scriptures, we're going... But does God take delight in anything that we do? Is there, but wait, I thought that there were rewards talked about somewhere in there. There's a verse somewhere, right, about rewards. And there's a possibility you could read the text, our text before us and you think, no, 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 God doesn't give rewards. You don't, there's no thanking, there's no praising, there's no favor, there's nothing extra. Just do your duty. But indeed, the rest of the Bible does indicate that there are rewards that are promised for believers. But there's a key distinction between the attitude that believes we deserve those rewards and the attitude that recognizes we don't deserve them. Rewards are given not because we deserve them or are owed something by God, but simply because God wants to give them out of his grace. Graciously given is the key in this fifth habit. Not given out of obligation, not given in order to balance the scales. 
It's given because he wants to bless those who have adopted this sort of humility. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives somewhat of a similar parable where there's a bunch of servants or slaves at home and they're getting ready for the master to return. And so they've got the, the candle lit in the, the window waiting for the master's return. And the master comes and he finds that the servants, the slaves have done everything that was needed. The house is all in order. And, and so the master arrives and he then tells the slaves to sit and recline at the table and the master then serves the slaves. That's the flipped other side of the coin of this parable before us here. And the one, the slave just does what's commanded. The master stays at the table and is served by the slaves. And the other one, the slaves are served by the master himself. And friends, this is our Savior. Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ who came in order to lay down his life that we might be welcomed into the family of God, that we might receive all of the, the blessings that come through the gospel. Jesus came to give them to us and they have been given to us not because we earned them, but because he simply wanted to bless. He wanted to graciously give them. And on that final day, Jesus will reward his people, not because we've earned them, but because he wants to bless You'll remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 where Jesus talks about three different slaves and there's two in particular where he commends these slaves for how they were faithful. He says, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the note that we all want to hear on that final day, is it not? Well done, good and faithful slave. Not in such a way that we've earned it. Not in such a way that we can be like, yeah, I'm pretty proud of my track record. I did pretty good in the Christian life. But no, we merge these together. Well done, good and faithful slave. And we are unworthy slaves. And we put it together and on that day we say, hallelujah, Jesus. If I'm a good and faithful slave, it's because you worked this faithfulness in me. If it were up to me, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be here in my own accord. I'm only here in your presence because of your grace to me. Hallelujah. What a savior. That is the heart of humility that Jesus wants to see in us and that we must work to cultivate, that we might give all the praise back to him and we look forward to the rewards that he will give us. We look forward to the commendation from our savior, but it's because we know that we don't deserve those and that we want to give all the praise back to him. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon describes this future day in this way. He said, the Lord will grant unto his people an abundant reward for all they have done. Not that they deserve any reward, but that God first gave them grace to do good works, then took their good works as evidence of a renewed heart, and then gave them a reward for what they had done. Oh, what a bliss it will be to hear it said, well done, good and faithful servant to you that have worked for Christ when nobody knew it, to find that Christ took stock of it all, to you that serve the Lord under misrepresentation, to find that the Lord Jesus cleared the chaff away from the wheat and knew that you were one of his precious ones. For him then to say, enter into the joy of thy Lord. Oh, what a bliss it will be to you. Friends, this is the joy that awaits the believer as we hear these words from our Savior.
This is the Lord who came to rescue us by his grace through his death on the cross. The Lord who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so with gratitude and humility, we can simply say we are unworthy slaves. We have only done our duty. We don't serve the Lord for the paycheck, but the privilege. We obey him without asking what's in it for me. We aren't trying to rack up points with God as if that could be done. We simply do our duty out of joy for the grace that he's shown us. And so I encourage you, work on repeating these five habits in your life on a daily basis. Whether they're worded this way or not, the point is that we are reviewing these truths in our heart, that each day we can put the head on our pillow at night and say, we are unworthy slaves. We do not deserve any special recognition, but hallelujah, we are loved by God because of his grace. And as we rehearse these truths, as we cultivate these things, may humility continue to flourish in our hearts. May pride be uprooted and may we see the grace of Christ begin to take root in our own character. Let me just finish this morning by saying, if you're here today and you don't know this Lord, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master, then I encourage you to talk to somebody today. You can come down after the service. I'll be up front. I'd love to introduce you to him. Or talk to someone in the pew next to you to know this loving Master who gave his life that all who trusted him would have life everlasting. You can go home with that joy of that relationship and knowing that you'll see him face to face one day. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for the truths of this passage. Father, they are difficult for us. They're humbling for us. We want some sort of credit. We want some sort of accolades. We, we think we've done something. We've contributed something. But Father, we have only done what was commanded. And when we realize if we have done anything that was righteous, anything that was good, anything that is worthy of commendation, it's not because we had it in ourselves. Lord, we, our righteousness is filthy rags. Our good deeds are, are tainted with selfishness and, and, and wrong motives all the time. And so we thank you that you use such broken vessels such as us. We thank you that you are in the process of transforming us into the image of Christ, that we are not the same today as we were yesterday and that tomorrow we shall be different. And we pray you would continue to work this in us, particularly humility, Father. May you help us to be humble Christians, humble slaves of Christ, recognizing that all the credit goes to him for what he has done in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.